The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 8:28 through 30. God's word says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. You may be seated. A platitude is a statement, usually one with moral content, that's been used too often to be interesting or thoughtful. So, too often used to be interesting or thoughtful. So, let me give you a couple of examples. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. If something has just about killed you, is that really what you want to hear? Is that helpful? Everything happens for a reason. This is true, but it often feels heartless, when you hear it in the moment. How about this one? Take the good with the bad. We never say that when something, somebody gets something good, do we? Like, just so you know, the bad's coming. We always say it when something bad happens. Does it help or does it come across sort of trite? Christians have often reduced Romans 8.28 to a platitude, a remark used so often it's almost meaningless I did a quick online search to see what products you could buy with Romans 8.28 on them. Wall art of every shape, size, and format. Canvas, vinyl lettering, plaques, metal, posters, and on and on. I think Etsy is built on Romans 8.28. Clothing, hoodies, long and short sleeve t-shirts, hats, socks, even boxers. Jewelry, necklaces, bracelets, rings, lapel pins, watches, even a jewelry box. Kitchen products like mugs and tumblers, water bottles, plates. You can buy a license plate frame, which I think just signifies it was God's will for you to cut that person off. You can get a gift bag, which I think is pretty cool because then you can double up on Romans 8.28. Like you can buy someone a gift and put it in a gift bag. Both have Romans 8.28 on them. I don't point these things out to mock them, except for maybe the boxers. But I want us to be aware of how easily something meaningful can be reduced to a platitude. How does this happen? How does something, a verse like this, so helpful, so encouraging, turn into something trite? I think it happens when we divorce it from the greater truth that surrounds it. When we throw it out, even if we're well-intentioned, but we just sort of throw it out there as a saying, it often comes across as robotic and cold, as if someone's suffering and pain can be easily soothed with a saying. Romans 8.28, when it's used by itself, I think is a bit like a greeting card. But when we understand the context, it's less like a greeting card, and it's a little more like the summary on the back of a novel that is rich and full. Throwing out Romans 8.28 to a suffering person can be like handing them a mug and hoping it makes them feel better. But the story of a person's life and the place of suffering in their story can't be reduced to a single saying. So in our text this morning, as we look at this verse and the truth that surrounds it, God doesn't comfort us with a single saying. He comforts us by showing us the greater story of our lives and the role suffering plays within our story. 
He doesn't hand us a greeting card that says, don't worry, it's going to be okay. He hands us the story of our lives and he let us, lets us see a, a few strategic pages to let us know it will all turn out well in the end. Now, God doesn't let us read every page. We should be thankful for that. Like, we are not equipped to handle that. But he lets us see just enough so that we can trust him as the author. So my hope this morning is to encourage every Christian here that God can be trusted, that he is the author of your story, and he is writing it with a purpose. So here in verses 28 through 30, I want to point out three traits every Christian story shares. Here's the first one. Every Christian story has the same last page. Verse 29, God opens the story of your life and he reads you the final page. And it doesn't just say happily ever after, it explains what happily ever after means. Look at verse 29. He says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God is creating a family with a great multitude of children, and each one looks like Jesus. Each one is conformed to the image of his son. Now, this terminology of image, it actually comes from the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, God made man and woman, and it says he made them in his image. That doesn't mean God's plan was for every human being to be a clone or to be some sort of mass-produced robot. God's image doesn't refer to our physical appearance or our personality or our skills. It refers to the condition of our souls without sin, without blemish. It refers to the disposition of our hearts, loving and worshiping God with every fiber of our being. But what happened is mankind sinned. They rebelled against God, and that image of God in them was marred. Instead of loving God and our neighbors, we love ourselves and our own desires. No longer sinless and pure, our hearts are corrupted and twisted. Our actions are ruled by self-interest, not the needs of others. We ignore God's will and we violate God's law because we're sure that our will, accomplishing our will, is the thing that will make us most happy. But what God does in his grace through Jesus Christ is he saves us from this type of sinful thinking, this type of sinful behavior, and, and, and he begins this process in his children of shaping our hearts to be more like his. Right? So as, as Christians, we've been reading this in Romans 8, right? The, the Spirit of God indwells us, and He starts to shape us hour after hour, day by day. He's changing how we think. He's changing what we desire. He's changing how we behave. And little by little, we're starting to look like Jesus. Paul describes it in a different letter this way. He says, we all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. He's talking there about the Bible we're seeing Jesus in the Bible. We're seeing him page to page, cover to cover. And he says, and we are being transformed into that same image. So that image that was marred when sin came in, it's being transformed slowly and slowly. He says, one degree of glory to the next. And listen, this process will one day be complete. We will not only be sinless, but we will be filled with love. We will love only that which is right and pure. We will only make wise and holy decisions. We will joyfully live our lives out of love for God and for the blessings of others. One day, every Christian will act, think, and live like Jesus. Can you envision a better outcome than living like Jesus? That means the sin, the sin which so frustrates you, will have zero pull anymore. 
that you'll never be stuck in a situation where the right choice seems impossible, that you'll no longer see fighting and selfishness in the church because we will act in perfect love toward each other. What could be better than that? How, there, how could we be any happier than the moment we are like Jesus? And there we stand, like Jesus. And we look around at our brothers and sisters, our sons and daughters, our parents and grandparents in the faith, and we know all of their struggles, and yet there they are, pure and perfect. We see them shining like the sun in our Father's kingdom. What could be better than that? But how does this happen? How do you and I end up looking like Jesus? Verse 29 says, We are slowly being conformed to his image. How is something conformed to the image of something else? Well, last summer, Kate, my youngest son, and I, we were attempting to create a toy airplane from wood. I say attempting because it wasn't very successful. But what we did is we, we went online, we found some shapes of an airplane, and, and we, we printed out the paper, and we took that paper, and we glued it onto wood. And then we took that wood over to the bandsaw, and we started to, to try to cut out those different shapes. After we got them pretty close, we then took those same shapes, and we, we took them over to the sander and the disc sander, and we just started to refine those shapes until they matched the cutout of paper. Once we got there, we, we peeled it off and we began sanding that wood, trying to get it to be the right shape. If, if we hadn't quit there because it was hard and tedious and we didn't seem like it was working very well, what we would have done next was figured out a way to join these pieces together. And once there, then we would have had to sand some more and, and finally paint and finish it. We didn't get that far because we realized it's a long and tedious process to make a piece of wood look like an airplane. How much work must be done to make you look like Jesus? I know there's a lot for me. And in fact, it seems impossible at times. But here's the great news. God's not like me. He doesn't quit halfway through the process. Like he never gives up because he feels it's pointless. He's already written the final page. And he's not worried about his ability to pull it off. If you're a Christian, you will end up looking like Jesus. You will be part of a forever family that is perfect. When God's sons are revealed in all their glory, then you will join them in the glorious freedom as a son of God. And so every Christian story has the same last page. Second, every Christian story has the same five chapters. Start again in verse 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. Now jump to verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Here's chapter one. God loved you before you were born. God loved you before you were born. When the Bible talks about God's foreknowledge here, it's not talking about something intellectual, but something relational. God knows every fact. God knows every detail beforehand. And so this isn't doubting his knowledge, but it's talking about something deeper than that. It's talking about a unique relationship he has with certain individuals before they were born. Okay, so throughout the Bible, we see this, that the word knowing is sometimes certainly used for what we know intellectually, but often it's used for a, a special intimate relationship. Here are a few examples. Husbands know their wives, and the end result are children. Right? That's more than mental knowledge. It's something, talking about something deep and personal and intimate. 
God knew Israel, we're told, alone out of all the nations. Does that mean God wasn't unaware of the other nations? Of course not. What it means is that God had this unique and special relationship with this nation. God knew Jeremiah when he was still in the womb. Let me give you a negative example from the New Testament. We're told in Matthew 7 that in the final judgment, Jesus will say this to some people, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So is Jesus saying, like, I, I don't know who you are? Of course not, because he calls them lawbreakers. He knows exactly who they are. What he's saying is there is, I have no relationship with you. God's foreknowledge is his choice to set his special, unique, never-failing love on those whom he would adopt into his family. And this is completely apart from anything we would ever do. So in the very next chapter of Romans, God says that before either Jacob or Esau, those brothers, before Jacob or Esau were born or had done anything whatsoever, he loved Jacob. God foreknew Jacob just as he foreknows everyone who belongs to him. So chapter 1, God loved you before you were born. Chapter 2, God appointed you to a predetermined end. Foreknowledge, in verse 29, leads to predestination. Now, the word predestined means exactly what it looks like. Pre means before, and destined means goal or destination. Because God loves you, he determined your destination before you were even born. He determined ahead of time that you would join him in his family. You'll be part of his family forever. This is what we read earlier in the service. Ephesians 1 verse 4, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. Why? Not because of what we would do, but according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, there are a number of different biblical terms that contribute to this teaching on predestination, especially the terms election and chosen. And I know This can be a difficult concept to understand. It often takes significant time and study to appreciate it. In the next chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul explains it in greater detail. But I want you to see this. Here's the point of it. And he makes this very clear in the next chapter. As he's going in depth about these things, as he's answering questions people have or objections people make to this teaching, he says the point of this all is to highlight the mercy and compassion of God to save sinners. No one should be saved. No one deserves it. But God provides it from start to finish. And here's the point he makes in chapter 9, verse 16. He says, so then, so after all this talk on predestination, election, people, what's going on there? He says, so then, it does not depend on human will or effort but on God who shows mercy. All of salvation from start to finish is because of God's mercy and grace to sinners. We contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin which makes it necessary. So, does this teaching on on predestination invalidate human responsibility? Because some say it would. Well, if that's true, if God really determined this, then, then how can humans be responsible? But the scripture teaches both of these. It teaches divine sovereignty and human responsibility together. So after explaining and defending election in chapter 9, Paul makes this statement in chapter 10. Here's what he says. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so two things are simultaneously true. 
God saves those who call on him, and he foreknew and predestined all who call on him. Now, the third chapter in your story builds on the first two. God loved you before you were born. God appointed you to a predetermined end, and here's chapter three. God summoned you out of darkness. When God created the universe, he called light out of darkness. What did God say? He simply said, let there be light. And the rest of the verse goes, and there was light. That's simple. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And he did all the same to those he foreknew and predestined. He called them out of the darkness and into the light. The Apostle Peter, he echoes the same teaching of the Apostle Paul in his letter when he writes this, but you are a chosen race. He's not talking about ethnicity there. He's talking about those who belong to Jesus. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's foreknowledge, a people he chose with a special love. Why? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one, listen, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like Lazarus in the tomb, each Christian was dead in sin. Our hearts were cold and still no righteousness flowed through our veins. But when the voice of Jesus reached our ears and we heard him call our name, we stood up and walked out of the dark tomb and into the light of his love. Chapter 4. God delivered you from condemnation. This really has been the focus of Romans up to this point, and it's where chapter 8 began. We were doomed to face God's judgment for our sin, but God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering to condemn sin in the flesh, so that he could say to us those wonderful words which open the chapter there is therefore now no condemnation. For whom? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Our record is clear. We are free forever from judgment. Jesus took our place in the grave so that we could stand with him in glory. Chapter 5. God conformed you to Jesus Christ. This is the fifth and final chapter, and we already know how the final page reads. We will one day look like Jesus, filled with all of his fullness, walking in love and joy, sinless and spotless. But I want you to notice something important. So those, those first four chapters of the Christian story all refer to a, a past event for the Christian. Right? God foreknew in the past. He loved me before I was born. Right? God, God appointed me to this predetermined end. And then God in his grace summoned me out of darkness and, he, and God has removed that condemnation from me. All of that's a past event, but this fifth chapter is a future chapter. I don't yet look like Jesus. I am not fully glorified, but it's coming. It's a future chapter. So why is it written here in the past tense? If it's still to come, why is it referred to as a completed action Because in God's eyes, it has happened. He has determined that it will take place, and there exists no possibility of failure. Nothing in heaven and earth can prevent it. This chain of events is so unbreakable that once the first was completed, all are considered accomplished. I think we need to stop for just a moment, brothers and sisters. Right? We've had busy weeks, plenty of distractions, plenty of things going through our mind. Let's just stop for a moment and consider what God is showing us about our story. He showed us the final page. It's already written, and it shows a happily ever after beyond what we can even conceive. 
And then he shows us the first page of every chapter. Each one already accomplished. His loving choice of us. His call to salvation. And his promise of future glory. Consider that. That is your story. Fixed. And all of this now assures us that we can trust the story he is writing right now. Why? Number three, every Christian story has the same purposeful author. So God is the author of our story. Notice that he's the subject of all the actions in verses 29 and 30. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. And in all of his actions, he has a purpose to conform us to Jesus Christ. So I want to read verse 28 now, and I, I don't want us to hear it as a platitude, as something we've heard for years. Maybe you grew up in church and you heard it over and over and over, and you have seen it cross-stitched and hung on more walls than you can remember. I want you to hear it with the background of all that we've seen so far. Verse 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. A few years ago, I had the privilege of, of hearing Andrew Peterson. He's the Christian singer-songwriter. He wrote a series of fantasy books for kids called The Wingfeather Saga. Parents, if you have young kids, great books to read at night. Um, the only problem is they'll keep asking for another chapter, but they're, they're really good books. But he was talking about this process of writing these stories, and he said that when he started, he, he knew two things. First, he knew what each of his characters was like at the start of the series. And the second thing he knew was what he wanted each of his characters to be like at the end. He wanted them to grow and mature and change in certain ways. He then said that everything in between served one main purpose, to get his characters from who they were to who they would become. So every struggle, every battle... Every bad decision, every act of bravery or compassion, every encounter, every single detail was to get them closer to who they would ultimately become. See, that's what Romans 8.28 says. It doesn't tell us everything will be easy. It doesn't gloss over real difficult times in our lives. It certainly doesn't redefine bad things as good. It simply assures us that God has a purpose for every detail in our story. Every failure, every success, every broken relationship and broken promise, every difficulty, every delight, they all serve God's purpose to bring us to the good end of being like Jesus. Now, verse 28 begins by assuring us that we know this is true. It says, we know this. So Paul doesn't say, hey, I want to teach you something. He doesn't say, hey, like, I, I want to see what you think about this. He simply says, we Christians know this to be true. We know that God is using every detail for our ultimate good of becoming like Jesus. We know this. Why do we know this? Because we've seen it in the life of Jesus. Every whip on his back, every nail in his hand was for the good of our salvation. So if the worst possible things that have happened in human history turn out to be that good, how can God not turn every bad thing to good? 
Nothing in the life of Jesus, nothing in the death of Jesus was wasted. Nothing was in vain. And so God says, we know all things are used for his purpose. Not some things, not most things, but all things. He even uses bad things to accomplish his purpose. Like when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Like that's a bad thing. My brothers did some bad things to me, but nothing even close to that. I want to assure you, if you have siblings, selling them into slavery is a bad thing. So God's not looking at bad things and saying, they're not actually bad. They are bad. But what he's showing us in that story is that God uses their bad deeds actually to rescue them. They sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph is promoted to this high position, and he rescues his brothers as well as the entire nation of Israel. And so Joseph is able to look at his brothers and say this, you planned evil against me. He doesn't say, it's okay. You planned evil against me. You sold me into slavery. But God planned it for good to bring the present result, the survival of many people. Evil acts are still evil, but God uses them for our good. Theologians call this the doctrine of concurrence. R.C. Sproul described it like this. He said, The doctrine of concurrence holds that certain actions in which humans exercise their will to do what they wish, even to making diabolical choices, are nevertheless under the providence of God who is at work in them. He has the power to trump our evil inclinations and desires and bring good to pass. God does not create or condone evil, but God is sovereign over it. And he uses it in our lives to make us more like Jesus. So this is what it means for us as Christians. There are no accidents. God is sovereign over everything. The writer of Proverbs, he said this. He said, the lot is cast into the lap. So so put it in our, sort of our terminology, you would say the die is cast. Or the cards are shuffled. And he goes on to say this, but it's every decision. Who's the it's? The die's decision. The card's decision. He says, it's every decision is from the Lord. What may seem like chance or random or accidental, he says, no, 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 this is from the Lord. God isn't like the painter Bob Ross who makes mistakes and turns them into happy accidents. God doesn't make any mistakes. He isn't reactive. He is weaving every detail of your life together like a tapestry until a fully formed, perfect likeness of Jesus Christ appears. But who does this promise apply to? It says in verse 28, those who love God and are called by him. This is biblical shorthand for Christians. These verses don't apply to non-Christians. In fact, I would tell you it is cruel to share this verse with a non-Christian because it gives them false assurance. For the non-Christian, all things are leading to judgment and condemnation. So if you're not a Christian, you must repent of your sin and call out to God to save you, and then this verse applies to you. Christians, here are those who love God. I want to clear something up. This verse is not saying That if you love God enough, he'll work things out in your favor. 
It's not a reward based upon how loving you are. Like if you only love God a little, then only some things will work out together for your good. I think sometimes we think that way. We think our love for God is sort of like one of those thermometers that churches uses when they're raising money. And like if we're all the way to 100% of love for God, then all things work together for good. But if we're only at like 50%, then 50% of the things work together for good, which isn't bad. That's not what it's saying here. Love, our love for God is not rewarded with things working out for good. It simply says this, Christians love God. Like this is what a Christian is. A Christian is one who has repented of loving their own way and their own will more than they love God, and they have turned and they have started to love God more than anything else. We love God, and so we trust God to write our stories, every single detail perfectly. Because we love God, we give ourselves to him to use as he sees fit. So Christian, God is writing your story with a purpose. You know, maybe he brought something unexpected and unwelcome into your life this week. Will you love and trust him? Will you believe he knows what is best and he will use it for your good? See, you already know how your story began and you know how it ends. Will you trust God for the middle? How do we respond to these truths? If we take the promises of verses 8, 28 through 30 to heart, how should we live? Well, we should be thankful. Be thankful that God cares about every detail of your life. Be thankful that you are not alone. Be thankful that he knows the number of hairs on your head and he said that no one can harm a single one unless he allows it. Be thankful that he has brought you to this very point this morning and he will not stop writing your story until it reaches the final page. Be thankful that the final page makes happily ever after sound simple and childish. Don't just be thankful, but be content. God provides everything you need. If, you're, if your good requires something, God will not withhold it. You will never lack what your story requires. Be content when you have little. Be content when you have much. Be content when you are weak and when you are strong. Apostle Paul said this, he said, in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Everything God wants you to do, he will provide the resources for you to accomplish. As a church, this is why we can be content, even though we don't know right now what our future with the building looks like. We don't. Trying to figure that out, and we don't know. But we can be content because God will provide all we need to do what he wants us to do. So if we need it, he'll provide it. If we don't yet have it, then we don't yet need it. We can be content because he is writing our story and he never uses the wrong word. Be patient. Be patient as God writes your story, but also be patient with other people. I want you to look around you. I really want you to do that. That wasn't just a thing... Preachers, I want you to literally look around you. God is writing all of these stories right now, and none of them are finished. All around you are sitting the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Do you realize that? That's what it says in verse 29. He's the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. All around you are the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Be patient with them. Understand that God is doing things in their life that you can't see. Give grace to them when they fail because you know their story is not yet complete. 
mean, this certainly seems the most divisive time in our country in the years I've been alive. And if we're not careful, this divisiveness could leak into the church as we all hold our views on certain issues. Brothers and sisters, be patient with each other. Even if you're sure you're right and they're wrong, you don't have to fix them. You don't have to set them straight. God is working to make them more like Jesus, and one day they will be like him. So if God can be patient with them, can you be patient? I love what Ruth Bell Graham's gravestone has written on it. It says this, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. Be patient with others. Be confident. Be confident that nothing and no one can ruin God's purpose for you, even you. We're going to see this more next week, but the Apostle Paul ends this chapter reminding us that nothing can separate us from God's love, not even our worst days and worst mistakes. So much of this beautiful chapter is written so that we'll live with confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ and his never-failing love for us. In the book of James, the person who lacks confidence in God is described as a boat at sea during a storm. Right? Can you just picture that? Like everything's swaying. You're grabbing, trying to hold on to things. You're, you're worried about being washed over. It feels out of control. It says, this is what happens when you're not confident in God. Every moment, it feels like you might capsize. But confidence in God moves you from the ship at sea to the shore, where your feet are set upon a rock. And now when the winds blow, what you do is you brace yourself against the rock, and you feel secure. At times, right, you might need to hunker down even further. Maybe you even have to get down so low that your hands and feet are all on the rock, but that rock under your feet doesn't move an inch. And so you know, I can weather this storm because the rock will not move. See, God wants us as his people to live confidently. He wants us to be able to say like the psalmist, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of salvation, my stronghold. So be confident this week that God is writing your story and he will not put down his pen until it's complete. The novelist Wendell Berry, he put these words that I'm going to read in the mouth of one of his characters. And I, I, I want to read them to you because I think they're such a perfect summary of Romans 8.28. So one of his characters, an older character, near the end of the story says this. Now I have had most of the life I'm going to have, and I can see where it has been. I can remember those early years when it seemed to me I was cut completely adrift At times when, looking back at earlier times, it seems I had been wandering in the dark woods of error. But now it looks to me as though I was following a path that was laid out for me, unbroken, and maybe even as straight as possible, from one end to the other. And I have this feeling, which never leaves me anymore, that I have been led. Brothers and sisters, we are being led by God's Spirit on the path Jesus walked before us to the end our Father has prepared for us. Let's trust him. Father, help us to trust you. We read these things in your word. We know they're true, but then we struggle so much with the details. 
It's so interesting that in some ways it's easier to trust you with the end of the story, that we will end up in heaven with you, looking like Christ, reigning with him over this new heavens and new earth in glorified bodies. Sometimes that seems easier to believe and to believe that small thing that happens this week is for our good. Lord, we need help to believe it all. We need help to believe that the big things are true and we need help to believe that every detail has a purpose and that purpose is to make us more like Jesus. So help us this week to live with confidence in what you are writing. Help us to be patient. Help us to be content. Help us to be grateful. But help us most of all to be confident. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.